0: Michael, this was really something that really um, stick with me, with me today. The um, the genuineness and impressiveness and just the concern and the family atmosphere of ORAU. When that happened on 9-11, I got a phone call from our travel department and they were crying. And they said, I just wanted to make sure that you were safe. And is Linda safe? Because at that time Linda and I were doing. Gosh, you know, when you travel for the 120th largest cities in three years, I mean, we were going every other week. She was more than me. And so she was crying and she said, What about Chip? I I can't reach Chip. I think he's on travel. And just that whole, just that whole love and compassion that was expressed to people that knew, um, you know, that we were involved in the sense of travel. And all of a sudden, overnight, in just a period of just a short few minutes, the whole world turned around.
1: You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the O-R-A-U podcast.
2: Happy Wednesday and welcome to another episode of Further Together, the O-R-A-U podcast. It's September, which means it's National Preparedness Month, and as part of our celebration slash observance of National Preparedness Month, I have brought together um, a great cast of individuals who are experts in various aspects of preparedness. And while Preparedness Month generally focuses on how we as individuals and families can prepare for disasters On a personal level, ORAU has been involved in disaster preparedness and preparedness um, for a very, very, very long time. And the folks I have in this episode um, can all speak to that. So I'm gonna have everyone kind of go around and I'll call you by name and tell me who you are and your current role at ORAU and then we will launch into some conversation. So Freddie Gray, I'm gonna start with you.
0: Hi, Michael. Thank you. Um, pretty great. As Michael said, I'm the director of our public health and health care program housed within OGS. And um, we do, we oversee several capabilities for um, OREU and OGS. And in particular, as it relates to this, um, we house the um, health or health public health preparedness program capability here.
2: Thank you, sir. It's Julie Crumley, you're next.
3: Julie Crumley. uh, work within public health and healthcare programs and conduct research and evaluation activities across different public health um, projects, including preparedness and response projects.
2: Thank you, Julie. Rachel Vascones.
4: Hi Michael, thank you. This is Rachel Vasquez. I'm happy to be here today. I'm the manager of healthcare preparedness with um, Public Health and Healthcare Program. And um, I am
2: uh, been, a little bit of my background. I worked at the state of Georgia
5: um, in the public health preparedness realm, and now I'm working on a variety of uh, public health preparedness projects here at OU.
2: Excellent. Thank you, Rachel. Mary Connolly.
4: Good afternoon. Um, my name is Mary Connolly. I'm an emergency management project manager um, for ORAU within the emergency management lab and public health preparedness programs.
2: Thank you, Mary. Will Artley.
6: Welcome, sir. Thank you. My name is Will Artley. I am a senior technical writer, editor with ORU Government Services. In the past, I have taken the lessons we learn in preparedness and translated them into tools that uh, communities across the country can use to better prepare themselves.
2: Excellent. And last but not least, Linda Hodges. Welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast.
5: Good afternoon, Michael. Uh, Yes, this is Linda Hodges. I'm a health physicist with the company. I now work with the NIOSH group. Uh, It's a program that we are, are working on that's a little separate than what I have done in the past. Previously was a health education project manager and worked on both domestic preparedness and international preparedness for terrorism.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much. So, as you've heard, we have a wealth of experience um, in this conversation today. And as I said at the top, we've been doing preparedness at, in some regard at ORU for decades. And maybe Freddie or Linda or whoever, whomever else wants to jump in. Um, if we sort of put 9-11 as sort of the center, I guess, if we were looking at a if we were looking at a spectrum and 9-11 was the center. Preparedness before was different than preparedness after and since. So let's talk a little bit about preparedness before 9-11 and some of the work we were involved in and some of what we've done in that arena.
5: Uh, yes, Michael. This is Linda. I'd be happy to start on that. Uh, just a brief history. Uh, in 1996, the Amshim did a sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway and three of our senators in the U.S., Senators Nunn, Luger, and Domenici said uh, we're really ill-prepared to respond to any sort of terrorism event. And of course, now we realize that was really an understatement. But nonetheless, um, so they appropriated some $280 million that we would go out and train the 120 largest cities in the United States. And in that training, we would train uh, everyone in the city that had anything to do with response. That would be emergency responders, hospitals, anyone that might be affected, even zookeepers and uh, folks like that. So we would go out and we we wound up doing um, 105 of those 120 cities. And then the program changed a little after that. And then post that, uh, we started doing international preparedness whereby we would go to several countries. We had a... contract with the State Department and they chose several countries that we did training with. Uh, For example, I went to Jordan, I went to Egypt, uh, we did Saudi Arabia, we did uh, Qatar, uh, several of the basically Middle Eastern countries are the ones we were concentrating on.
2: And Linda, what did the work there involve?
5: Uh, Basically the same thing we did in the United States. Okay. We were looking at training first responders, uh, in particular doctors and nurses, and then fire personnel, uh, police personnel, security personnel, Um, so probably a little lesser scale uh, on those international cities than we did in the United States in that they didn't concentrate as much on the uh, folks like zookeepers and the ones outside of the emergency response itself. Okay.
2: And then. And so,
5: that, sorry, yeah. that uh, for the domestic preparedness lasted through uh, 2000 and then we picked up the international preparedness after that and that ran for a couple of years.
0: And Michael, I'll add to that, too. I mean, Linda can tell all kinds of interesting, great stories. And I would encourage people just to get a get a second of her time and, and be prepared to laugh because there's just a lot of experiences, as you can imagine, doing this for several years and going on travel. We represented the Department of Energy side of the fence, so to speak. But I think there were probably five to seven federal agencies. Um, Department of Defense, I believe, led this. Uh, for the first three years, and they contacted us, you know, um, preparedness is so big and so vast, it's just not preparedness. Um, They reached into us, um, in some senses, because we have a background in developing training, and so that's one of the capabilities our program does as well, and so we were, good gosh, Linda, I remember us working till midnight in the office, you know, recreating or developing and supporting the development of lesson plans slides this is how we want to kind of present this material and sending it back and then um, they would modify it send it back by the next day and this went on gosh Linda how long how long did that go on several weeks did it
5: several weeks that's correct and, and let me clarify something for folks uh, when we're talking about a weapon of mass destruction and most people aren't really totally familiar with that. You're looking at, at uh, a weapon that involves one of three things. You're looking at biological, chemical, or radiological. Some people will say nuclear. So those were the three areas of concentration that we worked on. And, uh, Freddie and I, and then a host of other people worked on the radiological aspect because of course that's what ORAU's done for a number of years. But right. well,
2: we're talking big to the general public scary, you know, things that can happen. And, you know, in response to events that did happen, you know, as you mentioned, the sarin gas attack and, and other attacks that have happened. Uh, over the years, so um, what other kinds of preparedness work had we done in the time before nine eleven? Again, if we're sort of putting that as a pin on the on the map, as it were.
0: Yeah, and Michael, I'll 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 jump in that because Mary Conley has, has a major part of that too. But I, before we kind of exited that, I did want to throw out a kudos. You know, Monica Harrison Maples and Linda worked really closely together on this uh, kind of Monica was the overall project lead, program lead. Linda kind of led it for our shop and directed me and and several other people to support this. And it was just really a um, an eye opening, insightful, several years of experience that really um, established ORAU. Um, in the preparedness arena, and that was on the public health side, so to speak, and on the, you know, healthcare to some degrees, and in some things, it tickled a little bit into emergency management, but I want to throw it to Mary Conley, who, um, her program, Emergency Management Lab, that's, that's who they are, so Mary, uh, let me throw it to you and see if you want to add into what
4: Michael was asking
5: for. Thanks, Freddie. Uh, Yeah, you
4: know, I, I started, uh, it's interesting. I started my work in emergency management. So I don't know, Michael, how you want to format this, but I, as far as where the pin falls with 9 11, um, I came onto the scene with the emergency management lab at ORAU about five months before the 9 11 attacks. And oh, wow. okay. so, um, yeah, and I remember, you know, my first thought, of course, was for the safety of my children and how prepared is the city of Oak Ridge um, as a potential target for terrorist attacks. And and like everyone, you know, just worried about the preparedness of our nation and being able to respond and and realizing at that time that our lives were never gonna be the same. And um, a lot of work had been going on um, in the emergency management laboratory at ORAU um, under um, leaders like Chip Holtquist and and others who um, were, we're forming a lot of these um, preparedness priorities and um, and our historical roots of preparedness that predate 9/11. Um, I came onto the scene working with the Department of Energy's Transportation Emergency Preparedness Program, um, which provided radiological response training and tools um, for those um, different modes of transportation, trucking and and um, Railways, trains, and and that kind of thing, and however that that bad stuff is transported across the country. Um, but there was other work going on with um, with FEMA at the time, and and um, specifically in the Chemical Stockpile Emergency Preparedness Program, um, which I was also um, very much involved in, um, and the the CSET program, the Chemical Stockpile Program, um, had a mission um, already in place to, to better prepare communities for um, the the chemical stockpile um, that were in their communities. And um, they really took it um, to uh, to that next level with exercises and um, emergency exercises and capabilities-based planning and uh, trying to strengthen preparedness um, before 9-11, um, occurred, certainly um, the impacts of 9-11 are are far-reaching and and there was a a great call to organize our nation's ability to be prepared and to focus those preparedness um, initiatives. And uh, so we saw lots of changes um, at that point, but I'll I'll stop there if there's anyone else that wants to chime in to pre-9-11 history.
2: I know there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot that we've done, um, and Mary, you've mentioned some of the programs. Um, but you know, we've been involved in the um, DOE Transportation Emergency Preparedness Program, the Energy National Defense Executive Reserve Cadre Program, um, the DOE Emergency Management Issue Special Interest Group, um, which was a long-term project, and of course. FEMA Project Impact, um, just on and on and on and on. I mean, it's really, I mean, we've said before, you know, it's really in our DNA to be part of preparedness activities for various federal agencies. um, And that work hasn't stopped. Michael, if I
5: might add, this is Linda again. We'd be remiss if we left out mentioning REACTS. Uh, REACTS absolutely a huge part because they worked with us on the domestic preparedness as well as the international preparedness when we were doing those, uh, those projects.
2: Right, absolutely. It's a very critical, still very critical part of our organization. Um, the folks at REACTS and the work that they do, still traveling around the world doing training for first responders and um, medical personnel in response to primarily radiation incidents, but um, just great work that they do. Um, Mary, you talked about, I just want to dig a little bit into the nitty gritty. You talked about exercises. Um, I used to work in a hospital in the communications department. So I've been part of those exercises, both what we would call tabletop exercises and then actual, um, I guess, drills or, or in-person live exercises. Um, talk a little bit, so anyone, I'll throw this out to the group, anyone wanna talk about what an exercise is, kind of what the point, generally speaking, is, um, why we do them, and um what we what we get out of them
0: mary do you want to um michael mary's um several of our staff are certified uh, well it's not certified it's are trained to the uh they call it hc um homeland security exercise and evaluation program it was a program mm-hmm. created i guess by the department of homeland security back several years ago and it's it's the standard for how to do exercises, how to budget them. And that, that includes both tabletop, uh, which are discussion based and operations based exercises. So discussion based would be the tabletop versions Mm -hmm. and and things of that nature. And the, the operations based would be, like you said, the actual drills, the physically being out there and, you know, creating injects and, and all that stuff. Mary actually, is an a master level certified and so she she might have a little bit not to put her on the spot she might have a little bit more insight on on what that developed you know how that evolved and just how much more complicated exercises can be uh but but the key is on all exercises is you know you 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 perform how you practice you know and, and and that's the key for these exercises is that if you don't exercise chances are you're not going to be able to perform in the in the in a really effective manner that's going to decrease uh, mortality and morbidity when a real event happens so um, Mary is there any insight that you want to give as a master level exercise planner?
4: Sure, pretty, And, you know, as I've had conversations with people about what is an emergency exercise and people are like, you know, wow, that seems really complicated and it can be very complex and very costly um, and have a lot of purpose behind it. But um, I try and put it into into, uh, perspective for people by saying, well, have you ever been um, involved in a fire drill? (laughs) in school, that's an emergency management exercise, a fire drill. And um, there's a plan behind it. Someone is evaluating your performance. It's based on policies and plans and procedures that are established um, in the example of a fire drill at at a fixed facility, a school or a hospital or healthcare facility, um, a place of business. Um, There there are policies and plans that are are written and um, established. Uh, for for people to follow. And then there's, there's standards that have to be followed too, safety standards and and regulations and guidelines that different, um, facilities have to follow healthcare facilities, for example. So, um, there, there are actions that are being taken in response to an event. And, um, and then there are people evaluating against policies and plans and, and standardization criteria, uh, standards and criteria. So, um, that kind of helps me to better um, kind of base it in a, in a place that people can understand a little bit more. Um, but yeah, ex- exercises are one part of a continuous cycle for emergency management and emergency preparedness, a continual process of refining and adjusting and um, trying to get to that preparedness um, or readiness as- aspect that everyone's, looking for, you know, are we ready for these things? Are we prepared for, for the next event that might come upon us? And, um, so, um, plans are updated, exercises are conducted, emergencies occur, these things are happening, lessons learned, um, and things are applied and it's a continual process, um, that evolves. Uh, so I, I hope that answered the question for you.
2: No, I think you have, Um, and you know, in an exercise or in a, a, yeah, in an exercise, you know, many aspects of an organization, and in some cases, all aspects of an organization are involved. Um, I know, working in the communications department, you know, we have a role to play in the exercise. Um, Certainly, leadership has a role. um, You know, our occupational health department, etc. You know, everyone has a role to play, and it's all about learning exercise is all about learning, you know, where, where gaps might exist. Um, but also what's working. And then, you know, typically after an exercise, we do a hot wash or, um, you know, lessons learned to, you know, Hey, let's take a look at what we did. You know, what are the, what are the missing pieces? Right. So we can make it, make it better next time. So that when, you know, God forbid the real thing happens, we're ready for
5: it. Michael, and I. this is Linda again. I will add in that both the domestic preparedness program and the international preparedness program both had exercises at the end of the week they did with their uh, jointly with all of their respondents.
2: Gotcha, okay. So they all get to sort of try out what they've learned over the course of the week. Or however many days they're together.
5: Correct. And of course, on domestic preparedness in a large city, you can't have everyone. So you would have the heads of the groups that were there. Um and you know, folks like the mayor and the city city manager and the fire chief and police chief and those sorts of folks uh interacting. Gotcha. Hey Michael, I'll I'll chime in too and and, and you're spot on with the
4: with the level of engagement from from multiple different facets, it can become really complex really quickly. Um, and even the simple exercises, preparedness um, drills, and exercises and real incidents um, generate um, opportunities for improvement um, and things that need to be corrected or, or improved. And and that's really what it's dri- driving at is that continuous improvement, um, continually striving for readiness and and preparedness uh, so that, um, so that the, those actual events have less impact and um, can be better managed. Um, but the ORAU um, has, uh, you mentioned the Department of Energy's Emergency Management Issues Special Interest Group, the EMI SIG, a um, long-standing um, project that we ran here at ORAU for years. And one of the products from uh, that project was the Department of Energy's Exercise Builder, which was a very simple tool, a step-by-step tool. Um, I know our director used to call it um, TurboTax for emergency exercises, because you're answering a series of questions and and lo and behold, at the end of um, of the series of questions and, and information that you're filling out, you have generated your necessary documentation to conduct that exercise and to evaluate Uh, the performance of the people involved in that exercise. Uh, So that tool was developed um, for the Department of Energy, but it is something that we've um, grandfathered into and shared with with the Veterans Health Administration's Office of Emergency Management. Um, They caught wind of that tool that we've developed for the Department of Energy, and they're very interested in it. And so through that um, exercise tool, we began working with the Veterans Health Administration and started applying that um, tool to emergency management um, at the healthcare level for uh, Veterans Health Administration, you know, the largest healthcare um, system in the country. And, um, and it evolved from there because the VA saw quickly that while exercise design and um, document generation is an important part of the cycle. The entire emergency management program cycle needed to be incorporated. Um, so uh, we came into on the scene with the VA um, right in the middle of the H1N1 influenza pandemic. Um, but they had long experienced, you know, other um, other events like 9-11 and mm-hmm. influenzas and hurricanes and all these other um all these other hazards and things that took place. So um, we came in and um, worked with them to build out a comprehensive system for them to to support their um, comprehensive emergency management program to better prepare and make ready those uh, VHA um, medical centers and to, to protect the veterans, which is the mission of the VA.
2: Right. And I don't mean to skip ahead on our timeline, Mary, but um, I know that because you and I have talked about this uh, before, that the the VHA um, exercise builder um, or the, the PIMS platform, as we call it, um, was really helpful in the early days of the pandemic and probably still is at this point. But in terms of you know where where do resources need to be where are resources lacking um you know how do we move people from a staffing perspective you know who are over here but they, we need them in another location all of that kind of stuff and and exercise builder really helped make that happen for the VA
4: right yeah absolutely and, and that's as I was saying it they they took the exercise builder um system and, and quickly saw the value of connecting it to um, to grant funding that the medical centers received to connect it to deployments um, that you were referring to, um, where they're moving um, doctors and nurses from one medical center to those um, high impact areas, um, those hot spots that we saw during COVID, uh, the, the heat of, of COVID uh, response, and being able to move resources as needed. And uh, the system that we developed for the VHA um, allows that um, tracking of those of those assets, those doctors, nurses, and clinicians that uh, respond and are able to to travel and, and assist in those areas. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another big part of, of the system there that we've built for the VHA.
2: Thank you for that. Um, so, Kind of going back to our timeline a little bit. Um, So 9-11 happens. I'm sure we, those of of us who are old enough remember probably exactly where we were um, when we first heard the news. Um, And it's the first time that I think we as a nation realized that there were risks that... Could impact us from outside the outside of our country. That could impact us on our own land, and um, the world changed kind of overnight from a security and a preparedness perspective. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit.
5: Um. Yeah, I to part. tell a funny story, uh, and it involves Freddie, and then he can pick up the uh-huh. eleven. Well,
0: well, let me let me interrupt Linda before she that because I don't want her telling a funny story about me. <laughs> All
5: right, come on now. Uh, I was in my office, and Freddie came scurrying up the hall and said to me, "Have you seen the news or heard the news?" And I said, "No, about what?" He said, "A plane's flown in to one of the World Trade Center towers." And we'd been there working with New York before, and they'd taken us on a grand tour to the top of the World Trade Center Towers. And so we were very familiar with that. And I looked at him and I said, it's a terrorist attack, Freddie. And he said, you really think so? And I said, I know so. And less than 30 minutes later, as you know, the uh, second plane flew into the Trade Center Tower. And Freddie came back again and he said, I believe you're right. This, I believe what this is. And so uh, we had, didn't have a TV then. Howard McLeod back in our shop set up a TV for us and we started watching and seeing the different sites then that they were hitting, you know. And it was, uh, and we had some people up there at the Pentagon and then. In Pennsylvania, and then we got word that there was a small plane flying over Y twelve, and that wasn't real public. But what happened then? Those of us that were in the field working, we were like uh, pretty nervous about that because we were closed. And so, as it turned out, it was it happened to be funny because a guy accidentally got into the restricted airspace over Y twelve small plane. And F-16s were scrambled to escort him out of there. So, uh, I can imagine his thoughts after that, but nonetheless, that was, that was quite a challenging day for all of us.
2: Yes, Michael, it was,
0: it was, it was an interesting time. Michael, this was really something that really, um, stick with me, with me today. The, um, the genuineness and impressiveness and just the concern and the family atmosphere of ORAU. when that happened on 9-11, I got a phone call from our travel department, and they were crying, and they said, I just wanted to make sure that you were safe. And is Linda safe? Because at that time, Linda and I were doing, gosh, you know, when you travel for the 120th largest cities in three years, I mean, we were going every other week. She was more mm-hmm. than me. And so she was crying and she said, what about Chip? I I can't reach Chip. I think he's on travel. And just that whole, just that whole love and compassion that was expressed to people that knew, um, you know, that we were involved in the sense of travel. And all of a sudden overnight in just a period of just a short few minutes, the whole world turned around. And, um, Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that. And to this day, the compassion and caringness of ORAU resonates with me. And I think that still resides today.
2: Wow. That's, that's amazing. And I can totally see that having, having now been part of our company for, um, four and a half years, I can totally see that uh, as a member of the family. So, um, but the world changed, you know, almost overnight. Um, at least it seems like in retrospect, you know, you have magnetometers and other um, security devices at the airport and value straights in front of, you know, large, large buildings, government, and even box stores, you know, big box stores these days. Um, so that cars, cars and vehicles can't just go ramming through the front door. Uh, you know target or whatever. Um, being on a plane is different, um, even more different now, at least in the last 18 months than it was before that. But um, the world changed. How did preparedness change uh, along with the I guess the rest of the world, to put it in perspective?
0: Well, I mean, this is Freddie, I mean, you can imagine, like you said, and i think I think well, I know there was um a lot more emphasis. there were federal dollars that were uh, earmarked to go out. I believe there were three this is a little bit later on when they were focusing on the pandemic versus another infectious disease, but you started seeing a lot more emphasis on federal dollars, um, a lot more attention to um you know, Department of Homeland Security and what they're all about. But I think you also got a chance to see the importance of exercises. So, you know, Linda brought that up. Mary brought that up. And it's really fascinating because exercises are, you know, as long as there's not an event happening, exercises to some degree may be viewed as a waste of time or a box checker or something to ensure that you will receive funds because you are, quote unquote, prepared to handle an emergency. And I think we saw a major emphasis on exercises, on drills, on tabletops, on um, operations-based exercises, the creation of this Homeland Security Exercise and Evaluation Program. So there was a really big emphasis on that. And I really wanna kind of come back to a point that Mary had said regarding The VA and her work with the VA that's a great Mm -hmm. example of a federal agency who is committed not just doing this because it looks good they are committed to ensure that their facilities are prepared and they have things tied into that and the key to that is being prepared is to is to develop these plans that are realistic they're not just plans that are superficial only to check the box that I have a plan in place. So there were requirements that went out from the federal agencies that thou shalt have a plan in place. And the key to these plans and what makes them successful is to have that independent objective evaluation of those. That's why the Homeland Security built this exercise and evaluation program. They created these um, formatted documents that really could allow a planner, an exercise planner, to create their exercise and look in there as far as where do I want to modify it because not everything is a linear. There's always something that's going to happen that's going to throw everybody going crazy. And so where to inject that. But then you get somebody who really has a background or a strong um, commitment to evaluation and assessment, and you know our program, public health and healthcare program, while here again, preparedness is a capability, but it's 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 fed by multiple uh, other capabilities. So, for example, if you use preparedness as the platform, we've already talked a little bit with the nunn lugar Domenici that weapons of mass destruction. That a lot of that work was instructional design how to conduct training, how to put that on, how to develop the slides, and how to really get to where the audience understands what you're saying. The other component of this is the evaluation piece. What exactly makes for an evaluation? And I'll, be, I'll just be totally, totally honest and transparent, and most of the people know me as that person. I always thought an evaluation was, you know, was the food good. Did did everybody here in the room, you know, was the temperature good? You know, I had no idea. And um, so we were fortunate enough at one time to have, I'll I'll just, uh, Julie, Julie Crumley, Dr. Julie Crumley, she came to our program as an evaluator. And when she sat down with me and said, are you all collecting this kind of data? I'm like, "Uh, no, why would we collect this kind of data? And she said, because if you collect this kind of data, this will give you that kind of answer. And I'm like, you can get that from this? And she's like, oh yeah, I can do that all, you know, yeah. So um, I had no idea. And since then, that's been, I guess, almost 10 years ago. And since then, it's really given me a perspective of how important evaluation and assessment is. Um, Because you're not just doing this to check a box, you're doing it because if you have a sloppy evaluation, and something like a response needs to happen, then you're gonna fail, and people are gonna die or get really sick. And you know, with your permission, Michael, I'd love to be able to throw it to Julie to kind of give that evaluation perspective of how important those kinds of things are um, to the success of a good and a response where your people are gonna be potentially injured or sick.
2: Yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense to me, Freddie. I was actually thinking the same thing. So, Julie, um, in terms of evaluating, you know, what are you looking for? What um, what comes out of the evaluation process for the planners um, for next time? I'm assuming for improvement, for um what they're lacking, all, all of that. What what are you looking for in the evaluation process?
3: Temperature of the food. <laughs> I, um, Freddie just totally set me up for that. Um, you know, I think and yeah, Mary and Will and Linda have all touched on this. And, um, you know, Rachel and I have talked about this as well. You know, evaluation, um, can take many different shapes and forms and often can be an afterthought. But I think it's strength is um, during the planning phase for sure. Um, And essentially, not so much about how well did we do what we just did, which that it can help answer, but um, is what we are doing does that make sense for where we are trying to get and how aligned are those two different things so um, you know there it seems simple enough um, but you know during planning activities and phases and, and whatnot across the world um, things change along the way and sometimes we forget to um check back into like Are we still on course? Um, And so evaluation can often help to answer: you know, are we on course? If not, where do we need to course correct and how best to do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that we get to that endpoint in the way that we intended and a way that makes sense, and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, some of the example insights that act, those sorts of activities can um, provide are things like um, you know, are we do we actually understand the people we are serving the way that we need to understand them and their needs? Um, a lot of times there are assumptions that are made or we think that we know what's going on with particular groups or, Different communities and jurisdictions, um, but the data can often tell us a very different story. So um, that's you know I guess for the short of it,
2: long of it. So Julie, the um, just from a helping me understand, I think when you're you're talking about you know if. So the elderly population that may not be mobile enough to, say, evacuate if they need to evacuate or um, underserved communities that maybe aren't getting the messages the same way that other members of the community might be um, when there's an emergency and they need to either, you know, are requested to do something or make an evacuation or whatever it is that they may be asked to do it's ensuring that everybody can a get them get the message understand it and then act on it right
3: yeah so that's one of the things that, that can happen i think oftentimes some of the activities that we um, also engage in are things like that um, are those audiences do those um populations exist within your communities? And if so, where and who are they? Um, so really understanding those, uh, those various demographic factors because we can make assumptions that, you know, some po- you know, generally the, the population looks similar or that, you know, the average quote unquote family or has you know, two point whatever, Children, I'm sure it's like 20 year old data by now, um, but it, it's things like that where it's um, you know sure that's an average, but that might not be anything like what my community looks like, um, you know, and you can plan for the average, but you probably should plan for what you have.
2: Um, and working there's always with going to be a, there's always going to be an
3: outlier that you're not thinking about. Sure. I, I certainly think that if you look at like, so compare the state of Florida and different segments of their population to other. States across the United States, um, they probably have very different demographic characteristics and <laughs> thus we have some um, different planning strategies and scenarios. Um, yeah in an event, so it's along those kinds of lines. Mm -hmm. Um, But
4: uh, Go ahead, Julie, sorry. No, that's okay, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, just from the evaluation perspective, I think one of the most um, remarkable things um, post 9-11, one of the great changes is that evaluation has become more meaningful because of the changes that were made, um, things became more institutionalized and standardized, common preparedness processes and languages, and which which helps with evaluation. And that's a big part of this, you know, certainly um, preparedness related programs existed at all levels of uh, the government and and private sector prior to 9-11, but I think that these efforts were all made more unified um, by, um, a common vision um, policy definition of preparedness even changed after 9-11. And I think it kind of levels the playing field, which makes evaluation more meaningful. I mean, is that a fair statement, Julie?
3: Sure. (laughs) It's, um, I think so. You know, additionally, I, I think to add on to that is that When you have outside evaluation, you know, conduct an independent evaluation, you're looking for really getting information that is more objective than not, um, than doing it yourself in house. And so, you know, we don't necessarily, as an an independent evaluator, doesn't necessarily have that same, um, you know, incentive to show good findings or to validate um, the work, because it's not our own work that's being validated. Um, We are looking at providing an objective picture snapshot of, you know, whatever the program um, is supposed to be doing. And so, you know, that has oftentimes revealed a number of different things that were, Surprising um, to stakeholders, but helpful and able to provide small course corrections and implement changes in operations and systems um, that will make more sense and prove to be far more meaningful, um, and helps to collect better data so that they have a better you know, finger on the pulse of what is going on in the jurisdiction.
0: And Michael, I think to, to, to add to that is and give a really good example, is in 2003, so 9-11 happened. In 2003, uh, Will Artley and I were pinged by CDC's uh, Division of uh, Global Migration and Quarantine, DGMQ, and at that time, Um, Gosh, I guess back in the 60s and 70s, there were uh, a lot more quarantine stations around the country. Um, But in 2003, there were only eight. And the quarantine station's mission is to uh, protect and prevent an infectious disease basically coming in to the United States on an international conveyance, whether Mm -hmm. it be an aircraft, whether it be a, a bus, a plane, train, whatever. And in 2003, you know, as 9-11 was still, you know, everybody's still um, uh, dealing with that, you know, SARS started presenting itself. Right. And so CGMQ pinged us to travel to the eight quarantine stations and develop and conduct a tabletop exercise for them that involved them. Uh, well, let me actually, let me introduce Will Artley, who's <laughs> one of our, you know, key technical people. He he served as one of our primary facilitators uh, on this particular exercise uh, activity. This was a project that developed and lasted for, gosh, Will, what, 2003 to 2007 or something like that?
6: Yeah, the last one was April 2008.
0: Okay, okay. You want to talk a little bit about just how that evolved? I mean, you can skip the first one. So um, <laughs> the, the first tabletop <laughs> exercise was, um, uh, you know, I kind of got wrapped into it first because I'm local and Will's uh, offsite. Um, it has been offsite for us for twenty-something years, and just really uh, taught me the um, the benefits of been, you know, of having an offsite staff who can contribute greatly, super important to our program, and you know is just you know maintains himself. You know, there's there's there's, and so that just really opened the door for me to say. Wow, this off-site stuff is pretty good because we don't lose anything. With Will, we actually gain because he's always on. You know, he, he worked the weekends and evenings like everybody does. And that now it seems like, but sure. um, the first one we went to, we we were using uh, the quarantine station. Um, I don't know. I will just not say it. Will and if you want to introduce the city I'll, or the state, I'll let you. But I'm not going well, no, to. No, I, I could pick it up. It was <laughs> okay. New York.
6: It was New York City in our scenario. You have to remember, this is post 9-11. Our scenario had, I think, seven different flights coming into New York City with different ages of people ill with the disease. And Freddie was facilitating. They looked at him and said, we got that many planes. We're calling DHS. It's over. It's their responsibility. So basically, the exercise ended. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> they abdicated. Oh yeah, yeah that was did. great.
0: That was a uh, that was one of my highlights of my career. Is uh, you know <laughs> that didn't last long at all. So Will we, we'll, the next well, I'll let you go off on this one, Will. But from there on out, Will Will was the facilitator.
6: <laughs> yeah, we changed the scenario to uh, SARS coming from China, and basically walked them through the response. You know, it's on the plane. What do you do? What hospital do you take them to what personal protective equipment do you use stuff like that and did uh did actually all in all did close to 30 tabletop exercises with cdc at airports seaports land crossings and uh did after action reports did you know let them know you know what worked what didn't work well so it was a great experience uh one thing we did learn and the changed is when we were doing these exercises, we started out with SARS, but then it was uh, bird flu was the trigger for the response was, uh, one of them was world health organization, pandemic phase five. And the belief then was when you're in phase five, oh my God, the world's going to end. And then we got to the 2009 pandemic and we were in phase five and nothing was really wrong. So. You know, they had to kind of change looking at, OK, what are the triggers? And I think what of am now is just the impact on the public health and healthcare system. And Freddie, do you want anything?
0: No, I think I, I think you're, you're right. And I think, you know, it's it wasn't quite as extreme as them building the airplane while it's in the air. But it was very close because when we did New York, you know, we were getting input from them and we built our exercise based strictly on the quarantine station and input from them. So when I got up and talked, it was really, it just did not hit the mark. I mean, it just didn't hit the mark. And so what Will is, is not saying is that the intensity of these exercises and activities, because we left New York that afternoon and Will and I sat together on the plane. And that night on the plane, once we landed, we flew directly to Chicago because we had to do this same exercise with the same material to Chicago. And Will and I both agreed that is not happening, you know. And, and so we rewrote the whole exercise in order to be able to provide that to Chicago's quarantine station the very next day. So I think we did okay. New York on Tuesday. We were in Chicago Wednesday morning doing a totally different one. That was just, that became the foundation of how we moved it forward because, New York was treating it like a weapons of mass destruction, which rightfully was correct, but that wasn't the purpose of the exercise. And so then that took off, and that's where our progression really kind of, as our client with uh, uh, CDC, Dr. Deborah Levy, said, you know, that's when we started putting rocket boosters on because we worked, our, our goal was with DGMQ was to land the plane or the conveyance, get treat the get the ill passengers the two or three off the plane and into the hospital and then how to respond the quarantine station how do you respond in the community to the remaining 350 passengers that are there to quarantine so it teaches you the difference between quarantine and isolation where isolation you have the symptoms quarantine you've been exposed I'll let Linda another time talk to you about the same issue with radiation exposure and contamination. But um, sure. so we would get them up to the hospital, Michael. And then um, so the lady or the uh, uh, Dr. Levy, who traveled with us and became not only a dear friend of all of the people on this call, but our one of our customers uh, for a number of years before she retired, um, she came to us and said, I want to fund this because you all are on to something. And not only do I want to continue this, but I also want to get it into the hospital because I want to find out how the hospital deals with these sick patients and how the communication and the coordination. If you look on any major event, or it could be minor event, the two things that you can guarantee without even being there is communication, lack thereof, and coordination. It just doesn't happen. And Will, didn't at one time over the three years, didn't you all increase from eight quarantine stations to like 20-something over three years?
6: I don't know if it's that many, but it did increase maybe to 12.
0: Well, I thought it went to 12 or 8 to 12 to 16 maybe or something. But um, And you all did one that was a a walk across, right, up in Northeast when the gentleman, what was it in –
6: Andrew Speaker, the guy that had yes, uh,
0: yes, yes, yes,
6: tuberculosis crossed in uh, from Canada into New York. We did an exercise at uh, Champlain, New York, with the Canadian government there too. And I also remember, Freddie, we did one in Laredo, Texas, with the Mexican government at a land border crossing.
0: That is correct. That is correct. So, Michael, this was you know for us in public health and healthcare. Um, You know, and and emergency managers were there, too. So we really needed and, you know, took advantage of Mary and her programs, insight and knowledge on this. But that's that started ramping up in 2003 under the Bush administration. And then, like Will said, it started out as SARS and then, it you know, kind of bird flu. And then they always said, if you can deal with a pandemic, you can deal with anything. So we Mm -hmm. kind of changed it and created a scenario based on a pandemic. And that's when President Bush was given out supplemental funding for, you know, to move this. I think he, he was going to give out three. I think he ended up giving out two, but I may be incorrect. But the, that whole program, we went to, I want to say we had 12 full-time staff committed to this. And we had six matrix staff who we could bring in at any time to travel and conduct some of these workshops. And so- the exercises that Will was involved with and Linda, we brought Linda in as, a, as Linda just, is, is an excellent facilitator and we utilized her in many, many times on that part. And um, that was focused on on the um, um, cl- global mi- migration and quarantine station. Parallel to that, we grew our hospital in public health where we worked with, I guess it was probably 18 Different cities uh, and communities. And we looked at what is their model of healthcare delivery. And we conducted stakeholder meetings. And so, one of the capabilities that we continue to build uh, not only is the, you know, like here again, preparedness is the foundation. You see training and in instructional design. You see evaluation and objectivity there. Um, you see facilitation there. Uh, for training, you know, for, for just conducting of exercises, but you see the stakeholder engagement. So we worked with communities on what is your model of healthcare delivery? You know, what is it today under normal conditions? And then what happens if you insert a response? What does that look like? And that was three and four day workshops. And that's what Will and Julie and Rachel and, and, and and, and uh, multiple, multiple people went out and we started designing based on the information that we gathered during those meetings and workshops and stakeholder engagements, um, developed these tools that are used, uh, at least on their website by CDC, even to this day. So this, this kind of work went from 2003, all the way up to, I wanna say 2016, 17, something like that.
2: Gotcha. So again, we've been doing this for a long
0: time. This is where, you know, we really trying to hone in because, you know, the purpose of me in this is to help demonstrate preparedness, longevity at ORU, but also demonstrate the really, really, um, the, the um, I, for lack of a better word, the attachments to preparedness and response it's not just an isolated it is a full enclosed you just don't just say we're prepared or we're working on preparedness what does it involve to be prepared what does it you know like mary said you know the commitment of a federal agency i mean that's probably our largest contract in my program is mary's program uh employees i think up to eight staff full-time uh crazy busy um Huge. It's, it's a mission-critical function from the VA. And that has solely contributed to the VA's commitment and Mary's ability to get them what they need. So I'm, I need to get that and demonstrate mm-hmm. that that's huge. Same with, same with Linda, you know, the ability that and the knowledge that she has and the facilitating with Will and her, uh, Julie, with evaluation, because that is a central, central part of our program. And I need to wrap in Rachel more because Rachel does, right. does this preparedness and response with a focus on RAD. We're dealing with public health and more generalities. And we can go off, you know, we can go off and talk for hours on this sure. each individual person. And so while I want to say it's preparedness and preparedness, but I want people to who hear this to see that it's not just preparedness. It is, it is, in, it takes It takes a village and not only on people, but it takes a village on capability because I didn't even address um, I didn't even address um, um, health communications, you know, marketing and promotion, the creation of technical writing and documents, understanding, you know, and how all that feeds in to everything and then how to incorporate what is a strong community? What is a prepared community? And I think there's three elements at least and that is public health been able to work together with healthcare, been able to work together with emergency management. And ORAU brings all three of those from Mary's strong expertise in emergency management to our specialty and focus on healthcare and public health. And then you wrap those things in there and it's that ability to coordinate and communicate within and among yourselves makes you a very strong community. Um, you know, the time you meet these people, Michael, is not during an event. It's well beyond, you know, it's well right. beyond. And that's where, you know, and, and the differences between rural and urban and, um, you know, metropolitan communities, they're hugely different. So, right. um, I, other so, people may have something else they want to say.
2: All right. Well, everyone, thank you for, for today. Um, and we will schedule another session to continue the conversation.
0: Sounds
4: good. Thank, thank you Thank, you. thank you so
1: much. Thank you. Thank you, thank, you. thank you. thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAUtogether. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, We would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.